Growing up, I always thought it was kind of cool that I didn't have a normal granddad and grandma. By which I mean, um, on my mum's side of the family, I always had a nine and a tide, which, of course, I never questioned as a kid. That's just kind of, you know, you, you take for granted, as you take as law, whatever you're told. But nine and tide uh, is a, are, of course, Welsh for grandma and granddad. And of course, my mom's side of the family are very Welsh, properly, properly Welsh, as uh, they would have it, uh, from about as far north and as far west as you can possibly get before running into the ocean. So right up on the Llyn Peninsula. And uh, I always liked it. It was always kind of, there was always something very exciting about going up that way and going to visit them. Like, even now, uh, the landscape is quite uh, stark. And you really do feel like you're you're running off the edge of the world. As you finally cross Wales and head down that extended spit pointing towards Ireland and the land isn't, you know, the kind of, the country is narrowing on either side of you as you're slowly, is slowly tapering off to a point. And that's where they live, right up on uh, the edge of the world. And it does really feel remote. I mean, kind of growing up, this wasn't a problem, but certainly in later life, you know, it's um, utterly no phone signal. You are just completely detached from the world. Um, certainly no internet, obviously. And, you know, still, to all intents and purposes, only five channels or so. I mean, not that, you know, you can't get Sky or Freeview or any of, like, the many, many, many options of TV. It's just, you know, they're of an age where they weren't never entirely, beyond a certain point, never entirely comfortable with technology. So, you know, we tried helping them, but, you know, they, I think they were quite comfortable with what they had. But um, I always remember my... Tide, my granddad, um, used to be a captain in the Merchant Navy. He sailed as part of the Blue Funnel Line. And uh, he travelled the world, which is kind of crazy. I, I think um, I remember someone telling me that if you were a young lad growing up in that area, in the kind of Clint Peninsula, when, when he did really there weren't many options for what you would do with your life um you could either be a farmer you could be a vicar or you could go to sea and he chose to go to sea there's um there's a there's a photo still on uh the mantelpiece in my nine and tigers house it's a kind of um it ain't black and white folks, I mean, it's of Tide as a young boy. Well, a young boy, young man, with um, with his parents, I guess my, I guess it would have been my great-great, no, my great-grandparents, yeah, that's how it works. And um, it's funny, because, you know, obviously I never met those people, and obviously I know nothing about them, to the extent other than I, I believe they were farmers. And honestly, you could tell, I mean, like Tide's dad, looked about four foot tall but also nearly four foot wide you got the impression you could have bench pressed a cow if needed uh it just looked utterly hard as nails and kind of like this ruddy like north welsh stock you know like harsh landscape kind of breeks tough people and tied even as a young lad who can't have been more than 16 in the picture 
looked well I mean he was always a tall man still is but yeah just looked powerfully built you know and he kind of you could imagine him probably as a farmer he had that kind of traditional build but he um instead he went to sea and any young lad of that age wanting to do it uh went off to Liverpool or rather they probably started in the sea cadets before heading up to Liverpool which of course is a major dock and all the big trading vessels of the merchant navy would be there and he joined a company called the Blue Funnel as a I guess I don't know what the lowest level would be just as a able seaman I guess and then kind of headed off and the way you know he was he didn't mass he's not ever massively talked about his time at sea but the few things I've learned have always been interesting like I know he often said that the way the way it worked in the merchant navy was that you would have an agent of sorts you'd go to port and you'd sign up with an agency and say look here are my papers I'm a fully qualified you know sailor you know you need a crew so I'm just putting my name forward and then any time a crew was needed any time a ship had a particular shipment to you know transport um yeah, they they put together a team. It's a bit like um, it's a bit like a movie. I remember uh, talking to a guy who worked as an editor on several big kind of large scale film productions, and he said that every time they made a film, they formed a limited company purely to handle the production of the film. So while working on, oh, I don't know, let's go say Independence Day. As an editor, you would be hired by, say, Independence Day Limited. And then that would handle all the business side of things. And then when the movie was finished, the company would dissolve and wrap up. And everyone would, you know, presumably get their final paychecks and then go their separate ways. But then you would keep a little notch on your belt forever saying that you'd worked on that movie. And your time with that company, even if it no longer existed, would be your CV. And it was the same with Tide and being in the Merchant Navy. And he would, you know, uh, sail on all manner of different ships just wherever the business was. And, of course, if you signed up to a contract that it's like, hey, we've got, you know, I don't know, 50,000 tonnes of timber that need shipping from, I don't know, Argentina to Tokyo. You know, you're like, great, I'm on board, you know. And they, you know, you get your salary, you get lodgings on the ship obviously and then you know you're gone for I don't know months and months and months however long that round trip takes and then who knows even you might get to Tokyo finish your contract and then hang around in port waiting for another contract to take you wherever so he would be gone for months and months at a time and it's really odd because he still gets you know when you visit them and they're driving around you know, you take him driving around the, the area and we go through like the little village of Four Crosses, which is where he grew up. And it's kind of saddled on either side by these giant kind of slate black mountains. But you often say like, you know, oh, you know, that family of, you know, the boy who lived there, he was my age. He went to sea or that lad went to sea or that lad went to sea. And he still gets phone calls on Christmas from people around the world it's kind of crazy like he calls from New Zealand calls from India of people 
who served with him, or people who eventually served under him because he became a captain. But even if you were a captain, as my understanding was, you would have a contract, I think. I could be wrong in that regard, but I think it wasn't as simple as having your ship and taking it wherever. It was, you know, you were, you were working as part of a bigger company. You were working as the Blue Funnel line, and I believe you got deployed where necessary. But I remember, it's just interesting all the stories he would tell, because I remember one of the most striking things he said was when he when he was very new to the game, when he was really just a, uh, you know, a, a seaman, just for kind of lowest level, they were in a storm. And due to essentially incompetence on the part of some people, the cargo they were shipping, which was great big barrels of chemicals, some, you know, various liquids, had not been secured properly to the storage area of the ship. So every time a wave hit the boat, these barrels would roll from one side to the other. And as they moved, of course, they increased the rock of the boat. They, their shifting weight made the boat just tip and bend and flex even more. And they realized that if it continues at this rate, they're going to... Uh, they're gonna they're they're gonna sink. You know the boat is literally gonna flip over. So the captain gave the order that they had to crack open the barrels. That they had to uh, they had to distribute the weight better. So Tide and you know his fellow low level sailors were all ordered to grab axes, run down to the cargo hold, and hack open the barrels. That was that was their instruction. And Tide was saying something happened, like he was running down and due to some last minute thing, he had to make a detour, like he had to go and grab something he'd forgotten. Maybe he'd misplaced his axe or something. And in the time it took him to get his axe and come back, or rather come down to the cargo hold, most of the people there were dead, or if not dead, unconscious and in severe, severe conditions because... No one had given any thought to the chemical that they were hacking open. I don't know what it was now, but these poor young men all ran down, hacked open these things, obeying orders, and were instantly doused in an incredibly toxic chemical. And I know Ty was saying his um, his roommate died as well. And it's incredible. And he... Narrow, narrowly avoided that. He could very well have been one of them. I mean, I guess all this would be would be rather irrelevant. But um, he was saying the captain who had made those decisions and who had cost the lives of all those young men simply because of incompetence was uh, was a drinker, and it was kind of public knowledge that he was a drunk and not fit for his position but uh, such was the nature of the time and maybe the nature of the company it was just kind of brushed under the carpet and carried on I don't think Tide ever knew what happened to him later on um, in the dining room 
at Nineling Sykes' house, they always had a kind of... Well, it's like a picture hanging on the wall. But really, it was a 3D picture. And it was incredibly delicate. And it showed a woodland scene with deers and birds and trees, obviously. But it wasn't painted. It was all made of shells. It was all made of incredibly clean and polished, very ornate tropical shells, and which have been glued in place to make this kind of three-dimensional mural and then sealed behind glass. And, you know, growing up, and we spent a lot of time visiting Ninningside, it was always just part of, you know, part of the the background scenery. You know, I, it was just a, an element of my childhood I could never forget. But I found out later that it had actually been presented to Tide as a as a gift, as a as a thank you gift, as a kind of award, really, by uh, I want to say uh, I want to say a Chinese shipping company. I could be mistaken. It was definitely in that region. If it wasn't China, it was one of its neighbouring countries. But they were sailing in that area. And this is where my geography falls apart entirely. But they were sailing in whatever stretch of water is in the Asian South Asian region. And again, there was a storm. And this was a lot later in Tig's career, where he was a first mate, I think, on a boat. And they passed. Uh, they, they received a distress call in the middle of this storm and uh, this boat was in sinking it was in real danger of sinking and I believe it was a it was a Chinese shipping vessel and so Tide's ship came to the rescue and the captain ordered Tide as first mate to lead the rescue party to go across to to save the crew and so they all had to climb into I, I don't even call them the the not really escape boats, but like the kind. Oh man, I'm drawing a mental blank. You know the the little boats that hang on the side of the ship. Guys, going to drive me mad now. Anyway, because the sea was so choppy, and apparently this is standard practice, and I wasn't aware of this. They deliberately spilled oil onto the ocean. The idea being that the oil, you know, being less dense than the water, would sit on top of it and actually calm the choppiness of the waves. And, uh, yeah, and then they were able to sail across and rescue the crew. And as a reward, Tide was presented by the owners of that vessel with this weird painting, which now, not painting, which hung in their dining room. Yeah, he actually showed me a newspaper clipping of reporting on the event. And this was, oh, I don't know, this was kind of like the Welsh sailors newspaper printed for stranded Welsh sailors in, I don't know, like Singapore or some something like that. Yeah, and yeah, we had a full a full press record of the event, which was just seen as, you know, not inherently heroic, just the nature of the job, and anyone would have done it for anyone. But still kind of cool. I remember um, Tide was always in my childhood a uh you know quite a a rule 
following gentleman. And I think this came from his, you know, from his past. Like his life was very regimented. His life was very all done to, you know, the ticking of a clock. And, you know, even well into his retirement, he would get up and check out the shipping forecast and make notes on, on, you know, the weather patterns and currents and everything. And, you know, certainly when he was a bit more able a few years back, he would run the house like a, like a ship, like a, you know, he, he has slowed down a lot in recent years. And, uh, but when he was healthier, he was always working on something. He was always cleaning or scrubbing or fixing stuff. So I always thought of him as a kind of stickler for the rules, really. But I remember him telling me how, because he always wore glasses. I remember him telling me how there came a time when he, the new rules came in stating that captains, certainly in the blue line, uh, blue funnel line, had to pass an eye exam. You know, a revolutionary concept, but the idea that all captains had to have perfect eyesight. And he he, um, he took made use of a new technology called contact lenses to fake the test, which clearly was not conducted with a great degree of scrutiny, or anyone would have noticed he was wearing contact lenses. But I think he said he went to, uh, this may have been in Singapore or, no, I think this was in Japan, and he went to a Japanese eye doctor. He got some contact lenses to then fake the test to prove that he didn't need glasses, which he entirely did. In hindsight, I guess it's lucky that he didn't cause any crashes, but he did wear glasses and presumably only did not wear his glasses when people of a higher-up nature were around. And as captain on his own ship, I guess who would question him? But he, um, he spent a lot of time in Japanese ports, actually. When, in fact, most of the time, when whenever I've been around the world on a holiday. Or if I've been traveling, more often than not, he'd have a story about the various ports he'd been to. I think uh, when Lucy and I went to Denmark, he, of course, he sailed to Copenhagen. Um, Canada, he sailed to Vancouver. Um, I'm not entirely sure if he sailed to Peru or not. But yeah, no, certainly down Indonesia way as well. But he spent a lot of time in Japanese ports. I think he said later on that many years later on another trip, he found himself back in Japan and he went to visit the... Um, eye doctor who had given him the contact lenses and he was now a like a furniture salesman or something like that and anyway of course Tide got a very good deal off him because (laughs) I think uh, Tide has always had a good eye for a bargain and I think he ended up purchasing most of the furniture which is now in Nining Tide's house we always had these the most incredible um, chests, for lack of a better word, just for storing things. But I remember one in particular was jet, almost jet black, like utterly black wood, polished within an inch of its life. It was like um, 
it was like porcelain it was it was stunningly beautiful and and in inset with i guess kind of shell and very like iridescent kind of patternings and it was absolutely absolutely beautiful i still have it actually it's in um it's in Nanningside's bedroom and i think they got that from him as well probably for a fraction of a fair price given tide but yeah and i think at this time at this time interestingly japan was in the early days of its control by america certainly in the post-war days and i think i remember him saying that when they arrived in the port there were of course american soldiers guarding the dock and they were told that the crew this you know global uh, crew people from all nations wouldn't be able to disembark like they could unload their cargo they could pick up new cargo but due to the sanctions and controls on Japan post-war, no one was allowed to leave. So obviously when darkness fell, they um, threw ropes overboard and um, and snuck out to party, or in the case of Tide, buy full furniture sets, which would then populate a small house in North Wales for the following 50, 60 years. Although... Getting out of the boat is one thing. Quite how they got back on past the American guards with three chests and numerous chairs is completely beyond me. I remember he also said at one point they'd sailed to America and one of the crew had adopted a monkey at some point. Not a chimp, because obviously they're terrifying, but something smaller and cuter and I think I remember him saying that when they got to America because of quarantine laws they weren't allowed to take the monkey on board so I think they had to kill it something you know obviously uh, pretty horrendous but I, I think he said they had to put the monkey in a bag and with scones and throw it overboard a very a much simpler time I also learned, you know, one of those utterly useless facts, which is probably never going to come up again, but uh, worth knowing, who knows, that a lot of ships, especially trading ships, are built to uh, dimensions which are informally known as Panamax. So, which means, and I'm going to try and get this right, they are just short enough to sail under the Golden Gate Bridge. They are just narrow enough to go down the Panama Canal. And they are just long enough to do a three-point turn in... Oh, heck, which one is it? There's a... Oh, it's embarrassing. There's a bay. The idea is that Money, you know, money equal money is equivalent to the amount of stock you can shift. So a smart businessman might be like, why can't we just make the boats bigger and bigger and bigger? However, there is a limit. Because if you make your boat too big, then it's not going to be able to get into three of the major ports that trading vessels need to go through. So hence, you know, if you make your ship too tall, you're not gonna be get you're not gonna be able to get into San Francisco because you can't go under the Golden Gate Bridge. If you make it too wide, you're not going to be able to sail through the Panama Canal. 
And if you make it too long, you're not going to be able to have a turning circle that can fit inside this other bay. And that's killing me now because I can't remember what it is. I think he said at one point he was serving on a ship. Which was heading towards the Panama Canal. And Tide, who was not a captain at this point in his career, raised the issue. Why Why are we trying to sail through the Panama Canal? Our ship is too wide. We can't physically fit through the Panama Canal. And he was saying, like, no, and nobody listened to him. And they got to the Panama Canal. And rightly so, they were turned away because the ship could not physically fit through the Panama Canal. Like, even... Even... Um, you know, ships that do fit barely have a few feet of clearance on either side. This one was just too wide. And that's not, it's not a, you know, the goalposts do not move in this instance. Like, the Panama Canal cannot get wider or narrower as the mood demands. This is just a fact of life. And I think because of that, they had to make a massive detour. So, yeah. Don't know why I felt compelled to share these sailing stories, but there we go. They've just been on my mind lately. It's kind of odd, really, and I guess the irony is for a man who had travelled most of the world, for a man who had stayed in, you know, various places around the world, and he tied even now does not have much of an adventurous palate, certainly when it comes to eating or drinking. You know, you think you've been to Louisiana, you've been to South America, you've been to Japan, Russia, everywhere. And still, in any situation, what he really wants to eat is some nice white fish, potatoes, soup, and then maybe some apple pie at the end. He is an astonishingly unadventurous diner. And I know we take them out to eat when we go to visit, and it's, I don't know, it's not even a joke now. It's just a fact of life. It's like, how can we get, how can we get some white fish for Tide? It's very interesting. I guess you'd often think that travel would broaden the mind. Maybe it did. Like maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'm saying this with the luxury of not having ninety odd years behind me. But yeah, maybe he did try everything, and maybe he decided there was one thing he really liked. Maybe. Um, I don't know, maybe he didn't, he didn't try everything. Maybe, you know, he's tired of being adventurous. And he's like, look, now, crying out loud, you know, I'm I'm 90 or so. I need, you know, I'm pushing 90. I need a, I just need what I like. I don't know. It's also interesting. I mean, we never really knew why kind of Tig's career came to an end. I think he retired sometime in the early 80s before I was born. And... Yeah, well, I don't think we'll ever get the full story. I think there's an element of mental health as well. I think, you know, he was he was born of an age where these problems maybe could be diagnosed, but they were never really talked about or given the care they needed. But, I, th- you know, and uh, truth, you know, because truth be told, Ty does suffer from depression, a, a fact that's not compounded by, uh, not helped by his advanced years and, you know, his, his health, be it, you know, his hips. But, um, yeah, exalting the way, I often wonder what it would be like if he'd, uh, if he'd got some help earlier. 
I remember um, I was always told stories about Tide growing up on uh, a farm in North Wales, which had all the hallmarks of some uh, kind of classic Victorian boy's own adventure, you know, running around fields, being chased by bulls, that kind of thing. But he had, uh, during the Second World War, a, uh, he, was, he was too young to serve. But um, a young lad from London was evacuated to his farm and uh, became, a, a, you know, and spent several years growing up with Tide and they were good friends. And after the war, that lad, whose name was Bill, uh, his family emigrated to Canada. His elder sister had married a Canadian airman and she'd moved to Canada and then written back and said, look, it's great here, you should all come. And uh, and they did. And, you know, he left to start this whole new life in Canada. And apparently that was considered the end of it. You know, they would never see each other again until I think some point in the very late 70s or possibly um, eh, late 70s, I think, uh, Will Will Hoskins suddenly turned up on the door of Nylings Hikes' old weird old mountain house, which we've now had to move out of, but it was the most incredible castle to explore as a kid. It was just this weird three-story building called Pennant, kind of straddling the side of uh, a hillside. I think the garden was about 45 degrees, and it was absolutely amazing. Far too uh, impractical for them to live in as they got older, but something I loved visiting as a kid. And Will Hoskins just turned up on the door, uh, wearing jeans, which I think uh, I think I remember Nine Side finding particularly shocking. I don't, this is, you know, Tide being a man who's never wore jeans in his life. And, um, you know, long hair, uh, it being the 70s, big shirt, jeans, and was like, hey, I'm Will Hoskins. Uh, I've not seen you since the war and I'm back in the UK and I've tracked you down. And since then they had sporadic meetings. Like Nanningside went to Canada to visit him. Uh, He came over a couple of times to visit them. Uh, Certainly in my lifetime he came over and we met met him uh, when I was younger. You know, it's interesting, like he... In later life I think he'd become incredibly nostalgic for his youth in Canada, uh, his youth in Wales, you know, he had some kids, um, he wasn't especially close to them anymore, uh, he'd had a marriage that had, that had ended. When I went to Canada, the first time round, when I spent a year in Canada with my friend Titch, um, at one point we were living in Calgary, which, you know, with all due respect to Calgary, is in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it is in the middle of oil and farming country. It's just thousands and thousands of miles of nothing on either side. And uh, I took a bus. I took like a very long bus journey out of town to another another town called Penticton, which I think was about six or eight hours away. And Penticton... And like, and if Calgary was in the middle of nowhere, then Penticton was incredibly out there. We'd actually stopped by twice. When the four of us at the time, it was me, 
Titch, Sally, our friend, and Dev, our Canadian friend, who I'd met while working at Starbucks. And we somehow decided to go from Calgary to Vancouver. But on the way, before moving to Vancouver, we were going to stop via uh, various places. We were going to do like a bus tour, like a five or six day bus tour to take in the surroundings. And one of the stops was in Penticton. And everyone's like, why are we going to Penticton? There's nothing in Penticton. But I was like, ha there is something in Penticton. And it would be cool to go because my friend, my granddad's friend lives there. So I found myself in Penticton of an afternoon and through, I had no contact details for Will Hoskins, but through kind of calls to calls home and then emails and everything, I think my mom was able to get a message to Will Hoskins that I was in for a few hours. And at the time, because we'd given up hope of trying to find Will Hoskins, at the time we were up in uh, a, like a winery on the edge of town. Go figure, because we were like, what, what else are we going to do? There's a massive lake in Penticton. Penticton is is divided halfway between a very a, a, aging elderly population. It's like a retirement town. And also like a young kind of thrill-seeking kind of town. There's like, uh, there's a big lake there where there's water sports and the lake is kind of flat on one side and that's where the town is and then great big desert-like hills rise up on either side it's very desert-like or prairie-like and we'd gone walking up the side of one of these these uh flanking hills to go to a winery because we were like well what, what else are we gonna do like let's go let's go get some wine so we went and we had some wine and it was lovely and we were getting a little tipsy if not more than a little tipsy and um as and then I got word that Will Hoskins was kind of in town, and then we had like half an hour for our bus, or you know we were the the sadly it was like ships in the night. We had like a brief window to kind of meet, and we skied down the hillside again. And I was I was hurrying a bit, and I was a bit drunk, and I was like, oh grief, you know I've got to got to get back and try and see Will because you know when is this going to happen again? And uh, as we were coming back and we were trotting down the hill. We passed like a bunch of random guys who were playing golf into the lake and drinking wine and just kind of just smacking golf balls into the lake like you do. So uh, I left, you know, I was like, guys, I'm. This is actually really cool, but I I have a you know a date with Destiny, so I had to leg it down the hill. And I left Titch, Sally, and Dev playing playing golf with these guys and drinking wine. And as we uh, and I made it down to the bus station and. I met Will Hoskins and uh, his friend Mary, who had come to kind of see me. And I think we had about 20 minutes or half an hour, half an hour of just chatting, and we took a photo before we had to hop in the bus and head off again. And I agreed I would come back. I would, I would, um, I would make a visit from Vancouver. So, you know, a few weeks or months later, once we were settled in Vancouver, I got a bus for a, a couple of days in in Penticton with Will Hoskins. And uh, yeah, it was really, yeah, it was really weird. It was kind of nice, but it was weird at the same time. I felt, I don't know, I felt very sorry for Will. I, I, I think, I think he was lonely. And I think he'd reached a point in his life where, yeah, I mean, like, look, he'd, he'd ended up in Penticton, which was really the end of the world, it felt like. And, you know, he was nostalgic for a time 
when he'd you know been young in Wales, a time which I think he he equated with a lot of happiness. And yeah, but we had a nice weekend and we chatted and we explored Penticton and he took me to a variety show on a uh, kind of they had like these paddle boats which used to go around the lake and now one of them had been beached and turned into a kind of hotel slash venue and in fact Nine Tide used to have a and still do to this day a kind of placemat in the spare bedroom where we stay when we go to visit them showing that boat on the shores of Penticton and uh, yeah and it was crazy and you know for this little weekend I got a proper little slice of Canadiana where you know I listened to Canadian comedians telling Canadian jokes and you know just as growing up we'd always have jokes you know you'd always have a joke about the Irish you know the Irish were always the butt of every joke in Canada it was the exact same jokes only they were making fun of Newfoundland of the Newfies like I guess every culture has a a smaller subset considered the country folk who it's fun to make fun of which is rich coming from someone who grew up in Gloucestershire, I appreciate. And and yeah, and we, we just chatted about things and you know, it was sad in a way, like he'd he'd lived around Canada, like he'd worked as a he'd worked on the oil fields, um I think he'd worked as a builder for a bit as well. And now yeah, he'd kind of ended up in he'd ended up in Penticton. And he uh he actually had written an autobiography. Kind of self published and um, I think I have a copy somewhere. But yeah, and then we, we, we parted ways and off we went. And Will had always been a kind of dedicated amateur uh, filmmaker. You know, really to the extent of, you know, in the early days, pre-YouTube, he was maybe too old for the, the revolution of, you know, do-it-yourself film production, which had come. But, you know, very much like he would... He would, you know, film little home videos, little travel logs. Uh, he'd set them to music. He'd put them on DVDs and he'd post them to Nine Inside. And, uh, yeah, I often think it was kind of sad that Tide and him couldn't reconnect more in later life. I guess too much kind of water had passed under the bridge and they were too kind of different, I guess. They'd lived very different lives and... Tide was this big kind of stoic kind of you know salt of the earth former sea captain fellow and Will had obviously you know you know Will had, Will Hoskins you know had, had lived a more kind of varied um, hippie-esque life I guess and kind of um, you know wore jeans had long hair uh, you know no in his in his you know, later life, of course, they look no different to each other. They both, you know, like looked like any man in their sixties or seventies. But yeah, I guess the difference in time and you know, difference in geography had meant they could never reconnect as much as much as maybe Will Hoskins would have liked, which is a shame because I think you know, certainly as Tyg's health has kind of declined, I think you know he could have used a a connection like that. And certainly as Will, you know, got older and kind of you know a bit more isolated and maybe I'm sure he was desperate for a connection which just couldn't be returned sadly and um, Will Hoskins is now has now actually passed away which is um, very very sad obviously and I hope um, I don't know I hope in his later life he got a certainly in his last days he got a bit of a bit of closure I remember one of the last kind of images I had of him because we 
you know, we parted ways and really we only spent like a weekend together, but um, he was a nice guy. He was just a little lonely. And as we, I remember a year or two later, I was visiting Nine and Tide and they'd sent a, uh, or Will had sent them a, a little DVD of some footage he'd made. And uh, of course we, we had to help them play it, show them how to use a DVD player. And, and yeah, and we watched this little video, which, you know, was charmingly amateur. It was just, you know, Will with an old handheld camera and, you know, some guitar music he'd found playing over the top. And yeah, and the last kind of footage was a, was a family reunion. And he'd, you know, gone to a dinner with his, you know, with his children, you know, children who are mostly estranged, really. And I know one of his daughters had a lot of problem with drugs and but yeah and he saw his grandchildren and he saw some of his children and you know for a little moment everyone looked quite happy and I hope I don't know I hope things improved for him in those last few days really but yeah I have no idea why this guy telling this story I don't know it's kind of sad really I'd like to say it's an older generation thing but I don't know maybe we're all just as messed up in our own way I just kind of I don't know you're just going to hope that the only thing that will really help us is being able to talk a bit more I often think that would have helped Tide a lot earlier it maybe would have helped Will but as it happens you know Nine and Tide are still with us and I'm very grateful and um, very much hoping that they will be able to attend um, our wedding next year where you know we are already making as many plans as possible to make them comfy the same for Lucy's gran and her nan you know we really would love that generation to be there and we're going to you know they are obviously quite old now and we're going to do everything we can to make them comfy including being sure to serve some kind of white fish at the wedding dinner or failing that I don't know white chicken something plain but yeah thank you for listening guys as ever a random episode but I will see you again in a fortnight for another episode of Morning Coffee